All right. It'll be sufficient recording. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, thank you that um, in the riches of Scripture we could discover your will. We're going to tackle a, a difficult, controversial topic. We pray that um, you would illumine our minds and we can appreciate the riches of Scripture. Either way, we come down on the issue. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, I want to start by emphasizing that this is an in-house debate. Um, This is not a test of orthodoxy or heresy. Um, And so, if you come to this class uh, fairly persuaded that the gifts of the Spirit continue today, uh, and my class doesn't persuade you, that's fine. Uh, You are most welcome in our church. And, um, but I'm going to try to present the case for um, what is called cessationism. So let me just give you some quick definitions. So there are two positions on the gifts of the Spirit. The two positions are uh, continuationism. And cessationism. Uh, Continuationism is the idea that all the gifts of the Spirit continue today, just as they are described in the book of Acts, specifically prophecy, tongues, and miraculous healings. Cessationism is the view that, the root word is cease, that um, some of the gifts of the Spirit, the extraordinary gifts, prophecy, tongues, miraculous healings, were only given for the foundational period of the church and have thus ceased. We are no longer in that foundational period. So um, this is my introduction. I'm going to talk about, I'm going to give you the basic case for continuationism, and then I'm going to give you the basic case for cessationism, and then we're going to dive into all the texts. I gave you a handout that's six pages long. Um, my hope is to get through three of them today, and then the next week we'll get through the, the second half. But I'm really giving myself a lot of leeway. So if we only get through two pages, it's okay. We can make up for it next week. Uh, but I'm really, I'm really hearing a lot of feedback. I should try to slow down. So particularly at the beginning, it's important to hear the paradigm and understand the basic argument. So I will try to be as, um, as clear as possible. All right, so the basic case for continuationism. I think continuationism, the strength of it is it's very intuitive. Because it basically says uh, the church that you read about in the New Testament, uh, I'm sorry, in the book of Acts, and that you read about in the New Testament is the church today. That makes a lot of intuitive sense. Um, so the basic arguments are all the gifts of the Spirit are for the benefit of the church. That's true. And therefore, they have enduring value. In fact, the New Testament repeatedly encourages us to make use of the Spirit's gifts. So how should that not therefore apply to us? Moreover, there is no single Bible verse that declares that certain gifts have ceased. That's absolutely true. So therefore... Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, where did the, conti- the cessationist position come from? And so a lot of people think, well, it comes from the fact that, you know, if we look at our present experience, we don't see a lot of these gifts. We don't see extraordinary, um, miraculous happenings. And so maybe what's happened is that people have sort of downgraded their experience and said, oh, maybe, you know, all of those manifestations of the Spirit was only for the early church, not for us now. And that's where the uh, cessationist argument came from. And I want to say that's a terrible argument (laughs) Uh, because it's an argument from personal experience. 
And so let me just lay down the principle right now. Personal experience is good and useful, but it is subordinate to what we should find and read in Scripture. It goes both ways, by the way. So personal experience is, is good and useful, but it's secondary to what we argue, what we should see from Scripture. And I want to make the scriptural argument, I want to make the biblical argument for cessationism. I think the argument is quite strong. Um, there's a lot of biblical support, as you can see from the handout from all the passages, right? So let me just give you, let me just run through some passages to support the, the, continu, the, the continuationist position. Romans 12, verses 4 through 8. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, right? So it's the, the analogy of the body, right? All the body members, all the body parts. By the way, the, mem- the word member could, could maybe be translated as organ or, bo- or body part, right? That's what you guys are all, all are, right? They all do different things. Verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts. So what are these gifts? These are gifts from the Spirit, right? <clears throat> Gifts for serving and, and um, encouraging the church. Having gifts that differ, right? So there are different gifts according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his ex- exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who, a- who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So here Paul gives us a list of various gifts. These are not exhaustive, by the way. And notice, he doesn't distinguish them. He doesn't say, oh, some of them will end and some of them will continue. He just lumps them all together, right? Notice prophecy is there. Notice teaching and generosity and acts of mercy. Shouldn't we all do them, therefore? He doesn't make a distinction. Look at another passage, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So here Paul is listing various offices. And by the way, offices and gifts are linked, right? So why is it the case that the first two offices, apostles and prophets, have ceased, which is what the cessationist position is, and evangelists, pastors and teachers continue? Where do we draw that distinction, right? They're, again, listed all together. Or look at First Thessalonians five nineteen to twenty one. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So Paul explicitly tells us: Don't quench the spirit. Right? Um, um, make use of prophecies. Uh, so isn't that what cessationists are doing? Is what continuationists will say. Right? Um, they'll say you're quenching the spirit. So maybe the reason why you don't see these extraordinary gifts of the Spirit is because you're quenching the Spirit. You're putting God in a box. Right? You're using your rational scientific mind and you don't make room for the supernatural uh, for God. All right. So that's the basic argument for continuationism. Um, any questions on that before we continue? Continuationism is contemporarily, uh, colloquially called charismatic theology, Pentecostalism. Any, any, any quick questions? Yes, Dorothy. Uh, that makes it sound like continuism is only in those denominations? No, but th- those are the denominations that explicitly teach it in its oh, okay. doctrinal statements, and they're the most uh, well-known. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right, so 
the basic argument for cessationism. So, um, th th let me just say this. Cessationism is not an intuitive argument. Again, I think the intuition goes with continuationists. So in order to get the cessationist argument, you really have to soak deeply in the argument that I want to present. So I just want to ask for your patience, right? It takes a while to get it. Um, so this is the basic argument, right? The basic argument is that the early church And the church today, there is a radical split. Um, there's, a, there's a striking dividing line. Um, and the dividing line is, first and foremost, has to do with the presence of apostles, right? So you have apostles in the early church. And in the church today, you have no apostles. Which, by the way, already, that's a cessationist argument. Something has ceased, right? And specifically, um, there's two parts to the ministry of the apostles. They were agents of revelation. Uh, by revelation, I mean um, the writing of the New Testament. And connected to Revelation is two specific gifts, prophecy and tongues. I'm going to uh, work this all out in the, uh, through the class in the handout, so just hold on, okay? But just follow me for now. So you have the ministry of the apostles, they're agents of Revelation, right? They're receiving Revelation, they're writing down the New Testament, and the two gifts that are specifically connected to that is prophecy and tongues, so here in the church today, you don't have apostles, and therefore revelation is closed. In other words, the New Testament canon is finished. We only have 27 books of the New Testament. No more. You shouldn't expect any more. And therefore, since revelation is closed, these two gifts have ceased because they're connected to revelation. The second part is that in the ministry of the apostle, you have signs and wonders. Uh, well, let me put it this way first. Where's the eraser? Um, you have, um, what the apostles is, was they, is that they were establishing um, the foundation of the church. Let me write this down. Foundation. They were establishing a church for the first time. Oh, thank you. Um, and in that foundation laying exercise, there were signs and wonders. Um, by comparison, in the church today, it's not the foundation period anymore. The apostles did a unique ministry of, of laying down the foundation. So, no, so, so we're, past, uh, we're beyond the foundation. And therefore, no signs and wonders. And the signs and wonders are the miraculous, uh, extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. Now, the case of cessationism is that this argument right here, there are no apostles, revelation is closed, we're past the foundation period, there are no signs and wonders, 
All of this has no Bible verse that states that. It's an implicit, implied argument from the fact that the apostles are only for the early church. Does that make sense? So there's no Bible verse. And therefore, we shouldn't have to look for one, and we don't need one. Um, and the argument here that cessationism is making is this break, this dividing line has to do with redemptive history. So this right here is redemptive history. And this is ongoing uh, church ministry, but different from redemptive, minis- uh, redemptive history. So what is redemptive history? Redemptive history is a very important concept. Redemptive history are biblical events that are unique, one-time occurrences that are part of God's unfolding story in the story of salvation, and they do not repeat in time, and they are not models for our own life and experience, but they're part of God's story. So let me give you some examples. Um, The Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea, that's all part of redemptive history. We don't experience that. We shouldn't expect to escape from, you know, slavery in Egypt and so forth. Uh, The crucifixion of Jesus, uh, the exile of Israel, uh, the return from exile, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Um, All of that is part of redemptive history. And so the debate between continuation and, and cessationism has to do with when does redemptive history end, right? So if we could draw a timeline, okay? So this is um, Old Testament. This is the ministry of Jesus, okay? Both continu- continuationists and cessationists agree this is part of redemptive history. And then um, you have the period of the church today, right? This is not we're, not, we're not adding to redemptive history. By the way, redemptive history is recorded in scripture. So, you know, the founding of IGC is not going to be put down in the New Testament documents, right? Because this is the normal ongoing ministry of the church. The big debate is the early church or what I would call the book of Acts. What is this? Is this redemptive history or is this ongoing church ministry that's everyday, normal, we should experience it all the time? And that's the debate. And so cessationism says redemptive history goes up to here. It ends with the death of the apostles. And this period would be called the apostolic age. So this is qualitatively different than this. That's the argument of cessationism. And therefore, there's a change. There's an ending of things. And the ending is the ending of the apostles and the ending of signs and wonders and the ending of prophecy and tongues. Okay? The continuationist position, I think, is in a difficult position because they want to say... Um, this is all early church and church today is, is um, there's continuity and integrity and we're one. But then that means the book of Acts should read very much like today. But do we see the book of Acts today 
Particularly, do we see nothing, nothing breaking, nothing different? And I think ultimately a consistent continuationism would have to say the apostles should continue. We should have apostles today. We had apostles in the book of Acts. We should have apostles today because nothing has ceased. All the gifts are present. And I think that's a very difficult position, particularly when you look at what, who is an apostle, what is their specific ministry, and what qualifies. So my, one of the arguments I want to make is that everyone is actually a cessationist. Everyone thinks things have ceased. It's just a question of what. And I think the cessationist position is very logical and consistent because it's looking at scripture and saying, okay, what is connected to the apostles? That has ceased. Whereas continuationism, I think there is some degree of arbitrariness about what has continued and what has ceased. For example, you know, you have reformed Baptist continuationists like people I deeply respect, like John Piper and so forth. They're very much like cessationists in the sense that they don't, they think a lot of things have ceased. For example, no apostles. But then you have more um, extreme charismatics who will say there are apostles today. There are people who say, I'm the apostle, you know, John or something. Um, And so that's an extreme position. And I don't know how, um, as a a cautious continuationist, um, you can argue against that. A lot of continuationists will say, I'm I'm a continuationist with a seatbelt on or something like that, right? So I think it's a little bit inconsistent. Okay. Um, so that's the basic argument for both positions. Any questions before? Now I'm going to lay out the, the biblical case for cessationism. Well, I saw a hand. Yes, Michael. I don't want to sidetrack you too much, but by closing the redemptive history right at that point where you mark it, how do you define the final consummation? Shouldn't that be also part of the redemptive history? That's right, yeah. So there is... Um, what is it? The, uh, the final battle, Judgment Day, the return of Christ. That's also redemptive history. So, so, so I'm going to play the devil's advocate right here. So by, by doing that, yeah. you are pretty much um, kind of drop a stone on your own foot, so to speak. Wouldn't it better to sort of like ID these events, Jesus uh, 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 you know, coming, uh, his death and resurrection, uh, resurrection and so forth, as sort of like, like a markers, uh, pinnacles within this particular redemptive history. Yeah, basically I see what you're saying, yeah. Period, yeah. Which includes the consummation. Yeah, so I guess it depends on like how you're using the word redemptive history. Right. Um, the way I'm using it is these are unique events in the story of salvation that were re- recorded in scripture um, that, are, that are one-time events. So for example, a big debate is Pentecost. What happened in Pentecost? Is that redemptive history? One-time event, unique, never to be repeated again? Or is that ongoing ministry, right? And so... You are, you are, you are basically defining redemptive history yeah. as events happen only... For that time period, for a specific reason, that's right. And so the argument I want to make is that the book of Acts, all of it, yeah, I think this is, is redemptive history. It's to grasp because in the general sense, the entire... History is redemptive history. Yes, I agree. So in that sense, like what's happening in the book of Acts is, is obviously we're still carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. Yeah. All right, so let's go on. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah, I would argue that the redemptive history is, um, is 
it, like it redeemed, it was for the apostles, like they believed, but they didn't like fully believe, like, you know, they would, like Jesus would turn to Paul or Simon Peter and say, oh, you were Satan. And like, so they didn't really get it. So I, I argue that all that happened all of that, like the prophecy and the tongues and everything happened so they could fully, completely believe and so it was redemptive history for them. And okay. so I would say that since we believe, maybe that's why there's cessationism, since we... Well, the apostles were doing these miracles. So I don't know if it's a question of their disbelief. Um, well, it wasn't that they... It was like they really did like something... So I agree. So signs and wonders, I'm going to get to it, is for attestation... It's to support, to help belief. So Jesus had signs and wonders so that we can know he's the Messiah. And then the apostles had signs and wonders so that we can know that they're apostles. But nobody else is the Messiah or the apostles. So nobody else needs those supporting miracles to verify that they are truly from God. But it's like when others believe in them, they believe in themselves even more. And then they believe in Jesus even more. And they believe... They fully believed. They were new. They, they, you know, they, Jesus just showed up and they were like the first. So they, you know, um, yeah. So they were like doing a miracle. Like, whoa. Yeah. I must be an apostle. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Well, why don't we keep that as an open question okay. and then we go through the lesson. All right. Um, so first let's talk about apostles. So this is integral to the theology of cessationism is the doctrine of apostleship. Okay, the theology of apostleship. So what is an apostle? An apostle, the Greek word is apostolos. It means one who is sent, a messenger. And you need to understand it actually had a very technical meaning in the Greek um, because you have to understand that in the Greek world, they didn't have telecommunication. And so let's say two kings want to negotiate. They can't do it over text or teleconferencing. So how do you do it? You send an authorized representative, an apostolos. And that person has your like, power of attorney. They are authorized to negotiate on your behalf because they represent you and they have been personally sent by you. Does that make sense? So that's the imagery of an apostle. They're authorized representatives. Let me, sh- let me uh, show you some passages. Mark 3. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So there it is, right? The, you have 12 disciples. Disciples means to follow or it means to be a student or, or, or a learner. But they were apostles because they were sent out by Jesus personally and they had authority. Nobody else has the authority like the apostles because they were specifically commissioned by Jesus for this role. Um, And so their task was to be witnesses of the resurrection, to preach the gospel, and then to establish the church. These are one-time unique events. uh, Let me just uh, give you some more passages. Um, John 20, the apostles are personally sent out by Jesus. Jesus When Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and side. This is after the resurrection, by the way. When the, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so even so I am sending you. Right? So Jesus was in a very authorized, you know, official, explicit way. He was sent by the Father. The apostles are sent by Jesus. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So hold that in your mind for a while. The connection between the Spirit and the apostles, right? They received the Spirit in a very special way. And then verse 23, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. That belongs to the apostles uniquely, which is that they have binding authority. They get to decide what, who is in the church, who is out of the church, what is the church. They're defining the boundary lines, okay? The 12. Uh, yeah, the 12, although that's a bit of an elastic uh, boundary line because Paul's an apostle, James is an apostle, but yes, 12. 12 because they represent they're the new, newly constituted people of Israel. So that's where the number symbology comes into place. We'll get to that later. Um, where am I? All right. So uh, the apostles are the foundation of the church. So let's talk about this concept of foundation. Very important. And so we're going to talk about Ephesians um, 2.20. Are there proof texts for cessationism? I would say no, but if there were, this is one of them. (laughs) Okay, Um, let me read it to you. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the Bible specifically calls apostles the foundation. And we have to think through the metaphor. It's an architectural metaphor, right? So Jesus is the cornerstone, right? I can't draw the cornerstone, but... uh, (laughs) Um, The cornerstone was the most important stone that you lay down first, and all the other stones are aligned to that stone, right? So Jesus is the cornerstone. And then upon Jesus is the foundation, And that's the apostles. It says apostles and prophets. We'll get to that later. And upon the foundation is the church, right? Now, how many foundations are there in a building? Do you, do you layer on foundations? Do you keep doing foundations? Or do you, is it foundations all the way up? The whole idea of a, of a foundation is that there's only one. By the way, this supports the whole argument I'm making about redemptive history. I'll just put RH here. Foundation means it's redemptive history, meaning it's a one-time unique event. That's what the apostles were doing. Uh, It's a distinctive ministry. Um, And along with the foundation laying comes uh, extraordinary gifts that were given to the prophets. We'll get to that later. All right, so hold Ephesians 2.20 in your mind. We'll keep going back to it. What else? Um, The apostles were... um, the apostles were foundational eyewitnesses, okay? So the reason why apostles were especially suited to represent Christ, to be um, apostolos, right, authorized representatives, is because they were eyewitnesses to his life and resurrection. They saw the living Lord. That's a requirement. For example, let me show you Acts uh, chapter 1. This is, you know, very beginning. Uh, Judas has just betrayed Jesus, and so they want to, Replace him. So listen to this. So this is Peter talking. So one of the men who had accompanied, um, uh, well, Peter, Peter will talk eventually. Actually, I, Peter doesn't talk. I'm sorry. But anyways, listen to the passage. So, uh, oh, it is Peter. Sorry. <laughs> I'm psyching myself out. All right. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, 
beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So Peter is saying, okay, so we lost Judas. He was a betrayer. So there's only 11 of us. We need to replace and find a 12th authorized representative. Who is the pool of people who could be such a person? It's a very narrow band of people. It's only the people who were with us, who knew, personally knew Jesus, who followed Jesus, who saw Jesus and saw his resurrection. And they put forward two, two names, Joseph called Bar- uh, Barsabbas, who was also called Eustace, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, you, you who know the hearts of all, show us which, which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So that's a criteria for being an apostle. You have to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. None of us are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. We accept the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. We believe on that basis, but we have never seen the risen Lord ourselves. One day we will. So, um, so that restricts apostleship to the early church, to the first generation. Only the first generation can possibly have apostles. Where does, where does the Bible say apostleship has ended? There is no verse. But we know apostleship has ended because the criteria of an apostle is eyewitness to the resurrection. Okay? Or listen to this passage. This is Peter to Cornelius' household, Acts 10. And we are witnesses. Right? He's talking about... Yes? No, when the Bible uses the word eyewitness, it's not using it in a metaphorical sense. It's saying these people, like um, for example, John, in 1 John, he says, we have seen, we have touched, you know, that which we, we heard, we're letting you know. It's very important that we understand the chain of evidence. The evidence is indirect for us. We don't personally, we, ne- we didn't see the empty tomb. We rely on the eyewitnesses. And so it's very important, the chain of custody of evidence. And the apostles is that crucial link. Okay, I have a different theology then. It's cool. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so Acts, uh, where am I? Uh, did I read Acts 10? No, Acts 10. All right. This is Peter to Cornelius. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, right? They were specifically chosen by God to to see with their eyes, to, to touch with their hands, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. It's very important that they have this role. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify. That's their role. They had to say, I saw it. That he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Right? So again, this could only happen in the first century. This could only happen to people specifically chosen by Jesus. Let me read you another one. 1 Corinthians 9.1. This is Paul writing. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? One of the vexing issues for Paul is people all the time said, you're not an apostle. So Paul all the time they say, I am an apostle. And he says, I've seen the risen Lord. When did he see the risen Lord? He saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. And the Lord said, Paul, 
I've chosen you. You will be my chosen representative to go to the ends of the earth to testify about me. Okay? So Paul was the last one, the last of the apostles. Um, along with this eyewitness testimony are signs and wonders. So that's very important. And we're here we're going to get to Pentecost. Let's read Acts 1. Actually, this is the passage um, Wade is going to preach on the ascension, but uh, I hope I'm not going to steal too much of his thunder. <laughs> but uh, let, me, let me highlight some details here. So this is Luke writing. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, right? It seems to come up again and again, right? These are, uh, they have a specific role. They're chosen by Jesus. To them, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So one of the reasons why Jesus was with them for 40 days, one of the reasons why he kept saying, touch my hands, touch the wound in my side, let's eat some fish together, right? Let's do all these things together is so they could have eyewitness testimony, right? It was very important. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what is he talking about? He's talking about Pentecost. They're supposed to wait in Jerusalem, and they're going to receive this promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Is it to help them to believe? No, they already believe. So then what is the purpose? The purpose of the Spirit is to empower them. Is to give them, is to give them um, signs and wonders, gifts, so that their witness has, has, has credibility, right? And this is the debate about Pentecost. Why do we have Pentecost? Because Pentecost happens to the apostles after they've witnessed the resurrection and after they believe, right? After Jesus has ascended, right? After the disciples said, after Thomas says, my Lord and my God. He's a believer. So why do you need the Spirit? And this is where there's a kind of Pentecostal theology that says this is a second blessing. There's two blessings. The first blessing is a blessing of belief. The Spirit comes and you believe. The second blessing is you receive gifts, tongues and so forth, right? That's, I think, um, extremely misreading the passage. The, the, the Pentecost only happens uniquely in church history. We never experience Pentecost again. There is no second blessing. The first blessing is all that we need. We don't need signs and wonders because we have it reading in the scripture. So let me keep reading. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you, do, will, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Listen to this, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Remember, that's their role. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end, end of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up at the ascension and a cloud took him out of their sight. So the purpose of the Spirit is to give them power. Now, the power isn't like, you know, just energy to preach. You know, the power isn't like, you know, just like passionate, you know, emphasis and earnestness. That's not the power that's being spoken of. This is unique, authenticating, attesting power, signs and wonders, gifts of the Spirit. Okay? So that's what an apostle is. An apostle is an eyewitness 
and they're empowered by the Spirit. Um, let me read John 20. We've already read this, but now we can read it with appreciation. John 20, um, 21, 22. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And so again, you see this link between the apostles and the Spirit. Something's going on with the apostles that the Spirit is doing that is unique to their role as apostles, right? This is, this is sort of John's version of the Pentecost. Of, of Pentecost. Um, any quick questions before I continue on? Let me just pause here for a second. All right. Uh, so let me keep emphasizing this link, apostles and the power of the Spirit. In Romans 15, Paul basically echoes the same uh, passage in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right? In 1, 8, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Okay, so listen to the way Paul puts it. Very parallel. Notice this, the similarities. Paul writes, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Listen, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Almost the same thing. Paul is talking about his apostleship. And notice he says, being an apostle is just not preaching. It's not just word, but it's word and deed. And it's a specific kind of deed. It's signs and wonders. It's by the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit, again, is almost a technical term here. It's signs and wonders of the Spirit. And let me show you that link in so many passages. Acts chapter 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony, remember that's their role, to give their testimony, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. They did it with power, right? Acts 5.12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. That's the role of the apostles, is to do signs and wonders. How am I doing in time? Oh my goodness, all right. Um, Acts 2, uh, chapter 2, 41 and 43. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Again, uh, uh, the connection, signs and wonders is what the apostles do. Listen to 2 Corinthians 12, 12. I told you, if there's a proof text, it's Ephesians 2, 20. 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 12, 12 is the second one. Okay? Listen to what Paul writes. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So Paul specifically says, how do you know there's an apostle? He's an eyewitness of the resurrection. He was commissioned by the Lord Jesus and he has signs and wonders. Now, if we accept that there are signs and wonders that are the signs of an apostle, if there are no more apostles, shouldn't those signs and wonders cease? Why would the signs and wonders that authenticate an apostle continue when there are no no more apostles, okay? And so, so the signs and wonders, therefore, is part of this, uh, what is it, redemptive history, right? It's for the purposes of establishing, laying down the church. And so they have necessarily ceased. 
Um, now, continuationists will say, yes, you know, the, the church today doesn't quite look like the book of Acts, but there's been a lessening of intensity and amazingness because we don't personally have the apostles anymore. I think that's a very bad argument because where did you get, where, did, where is there a Bible verse? There will be a lessening of intensity and amazingness, right? I think it's much more um, clear and logical to realize the apostleship has ended, the signs and wonders have, have ended, okay? Um, let, me, let me go on in the time that I have to attestation, okay? So the purpose of signs and wonders are for attestation. The word attest means to prove the genuineness, to, to certify that it is true and correct, to give proof and evidence for um, and so the purpose of these miracles is to attest to the apostles' witness. So listen to Acts chapter 2. This is Peter at Pentecost. He's talking about Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. How do we know that Jesus is from God? He had signs and wonders. Signs and wonders can only come from God. And therefore, we know that He's of God, okay? The same principle applies to his authorized representatives. Listen to Hebrews 2, 3 to 4. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us. He's ta- by the way, the writer of Hebrews is not an apostle. He's saying to us, meaning he's, um, he's a part of the church. He's in the apostolic circle. We'll talk about that later. How can a non-apostle write, write a, a book? But it was attested to us by those who heard Who are those who heard? The apostles. Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So there it is again. Signs and wonders, gifts of the Spirit is to attest. It's so that we know the apostles are for real, right? Um, Attestation is only necessary for the first generation. We don't need further attestation. We have it in the witness of the New Testament. Listen to Acts chapter 14. Um, Let me just skip down to verse 3 for the sake of time. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness, that's another way to say attest, to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. These are the apostles. Okay. So Paul and Barnabas had signs and wonders because... They were attesting, okay? Barnabas is not an apostle, but he's in the circle of apostles. We'll talk about that later, okay? They also had signs and wonders. All right. Um, Let me see. I think one of the arguments that continuationists make is the reason why we don't see the book of Acts today is because we've quenched the spirit. I also think that's a pretty bad argument. Have I quenched the spirit? Is that possible? (laughs) Um... I think that if these gifts are for the ongoing ministry today, we can't quench it. It would happen. It would be irrepressible. God would make it true. So why are there so many gospel-believing churches without signs and wonders? Are they being all disobedient? Are they all quenching the Spirit? Now, the converse could be made. How come there's so many gospel-preaching churches with these signs and wonders. We'll talk about that later. But I think the fact that we don't have signs and wonders is a good sign that we're out of the book of Acts. Um, I wanted to go into Revelation, but I'll stop there.
Any questions? Yes? Quick clarifying question. When you say that there are no signs and wonders, does that mean that it never happens or that it doesn't happen on a regular Never basis? happens. So, like, I don't know, if somebody says, like, oh, you know, in a dream, like, Jesus showed up and, like, you know, this person from a Muslim country converts, like, you would say, that dream was not from God. No, I would say that's a really interesting story from personal experience. But I also have a personal experience, which is I've never, in my life, I have never seen signs and wonders that I thought were genuine. So you have a personal story. I have a personal story. How do we adjudicate these two personal stories that seem to contradict? Let's go to scripture. What does the, what does the Bible say? That would be my answer. I don't want to deny your story, but don't deny my story. But then, should we just fight with stories? Yeah. I, I think another problem with the continuationism is that they give the definition apostle of the apostle as two meanings. One is the absolute, because they... Yeah, so they create a two-tier apostleship? So they, they, I, I don't think any of the continuationism people would say that the absolute apostle exists today. They, they don't... So I would say, where's the Bible verse for two-tier apostleship? Well, they based on the fact that there are other people that call apostle other than the 13 in the full text. And they based on that. Uh, any other questions? Yes. So kind of similar. Should we not pray for like miraculous healing or those kinds of things? Is that something? I think you could pray for healing. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to that to the second class. But mirac- the, the kind of miraculous healings was truly supernatural. There was a man named Eutychius. He was listening to Paul preach. Paul could drone on. He fell asleep. He fell off the second floor. He died. Paul raised him from the dead. That's the kind of miraculous healings we're talking about that happened in the book of Acts. I don't, I've never heard of a resurrection today. Why not? I guess that's what we're missing a bit is we're kind of muting the term signs and wonders. Yeah. Right. Well, mute the term signs and wonders is a lot easier to apply to some of the more amazing things we're seeing today, but they're not really signs and wonders. Yes. And I guess we didn't. I guess because for the sake of time, we didn't spend enough time really defining the, the the magnification, the truly magnified value of what a sign and wonder really is. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And resurrection being probably one of the more ultimate ones. Yes. This will be the last question. Going back to what he was saying over there um, about the apostles, I don't think that we're apostles anymore today. We're disciples. So if there are signs and wonders, it's like they're not to the level of apostles. Mm-hmm. They're to, I think they're probably to the level of disciples. Mm. So, you know, maybe they're muted or, you know, they come in a different way. Mm. Or, yeah. Yeah, so that's the continuationist argument. Yeah, I think I would argue. Muted that. signs and wonders. Yeah, and I, w- I would say, where do you see that in Scripture? Uh, well, I didn't, but I uh, had, in 1995, had a, I, I'm not with this denomination, I'm with another denomination. Um, in 1995, I had a vision of a plane flying into one of the towers of the World Trade Center, and it occurred. But I actually didn't do it right. It's not like I went, I, you know, and, you know a person died, I heard a bit like, well, like this person that was supposed to, preach to but I I didn't go and say you know repent and like I just didn't do it right I did everything wrong and like and so I just yeah yes so I I I don't want to deny your story yes I I don't have an explanation for it it sounds amazing um but 
I, I don't know what to say. Other than I think 9-11, as amazing as it is for us Americans, I think in redemptive history, is not a significant event, is what I would say. Um, well, it brought in the whole Muslim thing. And like we're a Christian country, we've gone through, like, and, you know, and we acknowledge, I guess, Judaism. Mm. And it brought in Muslims. So it's like all of his religions. Mm. So, and then they were saying that Obama was a Muslim and mm. because it was, it was like some, they all believe that and uh, anyway, so yeah, anyway. that's I mean that's so that's beyond me. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I can't. I can't. That's beyond my expertise. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I just don't agree. I like, but um, that's that's good. Yeah, I think so. I think this is an in-house debate. I want to just affirm, sister. <laughs> you know, it's. I think it's a friendly debate, and yeah, we can disagree yeah. in a friendly way. Yeah, yeah, I'm not upset. I just and I appreciate you. Um, clarifying what church history is because my denomination has a lot of church history and I was just, I just didn't want to do it. I was like, why should I do it? And so this shows what church history is. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. All right, let me pray. Um, Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your scriptures that you don't leave us without guidance or wisdom. And we pray that we will be lovers of scripture. We'll be searching for your will, trying to seek understanding. And there are treasures. There are layers and layers of treasures. So, I pray we'd have this attitude in Christ's name. Amen.